You could be seated. And if you have a Bible with you this morning, as it's already been said, we're in Genesis chapter 1. We're in our second week in a study of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the first book of our Bibles. And having covered the first six and a half days of the creation week last week, today we come to the rest of the sixth day and also the seventh day. The six days in Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, and then the seventh day is in the first few verses of chapter 2, which is a good reminder to us that these chapter and verse breaks in our Bibles are not inspired by God. They've been inserted by Bible translators long ago, and for good reason, we should add. I can't imagine preaching to people who have Bibles in front of them and wanting to show them, to see it for themselves, and to not have the mile markers of chapters and verses in the Bible. And so they're, they're helpful indeed, especially for the study of the Bible in groups like we're doing today. And, and most often, the chapter breaks also provide for us logical and linguistic breaks. They mark literary shifts or sometimes geographic shifts but not always. Sometimes we should come to a change in the chapter of our Bible and scratch our heads why it was placed there. And the break from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 is certainly one of those. The seven days of creation stretch just a few verses past chapter 2. And I'm OCD enough to just twitch a little bit about that, but we say, oh well, and we press on and on to more important matters. There are many massive issues represented in our passage for today. The origin of human beings, the image of God and what that entails, how we relate to and represent the creator, gender, the place of humanity compared with other creatures on this planet, and the relationship to the earth that we all share, and the responsibility for the earth that we have. Well, these are massive and relevant issues today. These are relevant questions in play today, even among the non-religious. Who are we, people ask? How do we get here? What on earth are we doing here? We ask more individually, what's my identity? How much of my identity is individual and how much is shared how do i view other human beings how do i treat other human beings how should we think about population growth how should we treat the earth or care for the earth and what does it mean to be male or female and where is god in all this well, to find the most fundamental answers to those kinds of questions, we need not turn to the philosophers or the psychologists or the scientists or to look within. The Bible begins with fundamental answers to those ancient and ever-relevant questions. So let's read it. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Well, those time markers of separate days give us two main headings this morning. There's humanity created on the sixth day, and then God rested on the seventh day. The first of those will take the majority of our time this morning because, well, because it occupies more text than the other, but also because it has many different issues involved. So first, humanity created on the sixth day. And this really is the pinnacle point of God's creational work. We see three indications in the passage that the creation of humanity is the pinnacle among other parts of God's creation. Notice that there's a slight but undeniable difference in the way this day is introduced compared to the others. For five times God said, And God said. The text says, and God said, and God said. That introduces each day until we come to verse 26. Then God said. It's a slight difference, but it's a culmination. It's a climactic moment. Or just think of the amount of material. That there are six verses on the creation of man in woman, which is much more than any other category of creation that came before. Or just look at what it says here about human beings. It's explicit. God is explicit that this is the pinnacle point of his creational work. I see four aspects, four overlapping but distinguishable aspects of God's creation of humanity. Number one, they are created in God's image, in his image. Then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in the first poem of the Bible, in verse 27, it's repeated. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
No other creature or thing is made with such lofty intentions. Yes, all of creation bears God's fingerprints. It's his handiwork. As Psalm 19 says, it all speaks of him. It reflects him. But human beings alone are made in his image. Well, actually, it's our image, isn't it? Verse 26, our image. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And what's with the plural, you might ask? And you might rightly ask, because hopefully it's clear by now from the previous 25 verses that this God is one God. There isn't the God of the sea and the God of agriculture and the God of the clouds or the rain. Not rival gods, dueling for supremacy. No, one God, but he speaks with plurality in verse 26. Some propose that this is God taking counsel with the angels at creation. But that's not likely since Isaiah 40 says he consulted no one at creation. Others say that this is a plural of majesty. This is like a a royal we. It's like when a king or queen speaks unilaterally but still speaks in plural, we. Yeah, but nowhere else in the Bible does God do that sort of thing. So probably not. I think more likely it reflects the plurality of the Godhead that we spoke of a little bit last week. Remember we saw in verse 2? The Spirit of God was on the face of the waters. The Spirit of God. Now, Moses, of course, wouldn't have a fully blown Trinitarian theology. We don't suppose that Moses had enough information that he could have authored the Nicene Creed or some of the Trinitarian hymns that we sang this morning. But there's plurality. Apparently, verse 26 is divine communication within this Godhead, the plural persons of the one God. Now, other would-be gods, what the Bible calls idols, other gods of the nations surrounding Israel, they would have had their own knock-off versions of this language of image and likeness. When a temple was made for one of those gods, an image of that god, an icon, was placed in the temple. It was his image. And when a king, thought to be a god himself in those days, among those nations, when a king would go away to a foreign land, he would often leave a likeness of himself behind as a representative of his rule and a promise of his return. But the true God creates human beings in his image and likeness. But what does that mean, image and likeness? I think those two words are synonymous, image, likeness. What do they mean? What do they involve? There is some debate. Some say that it's related to mankind's rationality, our intelligence. Some say it's more a matter of functionality, that we are to rule and have dominion, as the passage goes on to talk about. And some say it's about our relation to God, our communion with him, our worship of him. 
I would favor in all of the above approach to the image of God. Being made in the image of God means we're to reflect him, reflect what he's like in a way that's distinct from other parts of God's creation. So this would include dignity, authority, dominion, creativity, morality, speech and relationships, eternality, that we are eternal beings, and also our capacity for worship and communion with God. It's all of that. And who is that for? Who is that about? Well, it's male and female. That's made explicit in the passage. And implied is also that it is all human beings after the first male and female. Not just the first male and female. Every human being is made in God's image. And that's not limited by skin color or wealth or education or intelligence or physical strength or age. Every human being is stamped with God's image and likeness. Stamped with God's worth and dignity and honor and blessing. Which says a whole lot about how we treat people. Of course, it rules out murder. Murder at any age, including those still in the womb and those who are really old. It rules out treating people as property. It rules out using people for our own benefit. It should rule out slander and undignified speech about others or to them. And it even should rule out flippancy about our interactions with other image bearers. C.S. Lewis put it so well. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to yours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke and work and marry and snub and exploit. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn, Lewis says. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. The most difficult person in your life is made in the image of God. That annoying, selfish driver that cuts you off tomorrow morning is made in the image of God. Every person that you encounter online is made in God's image. Unless they're a bot which is possible, bots are not made in God's image. We know that. I just want to say directly to you, friend, you are made in God's image. He has made you special. 
teenager struggling with identity and image and acceptance, you are made in God's image and made to reflect him. You were made for big purposes. Tired mom, weary, worn out, you are made for God and made to reflect him. You bear his image even when you don't feel like it. Those of you with struggles about your identity, you were made in God's image. A pastor friend of mine, Dave Schrock, pastors in Virginia, he wrote on his blog about the image of God, he said these four things. It dignifies the depressed. It humbles the haughty. It motivates the lazy. It refreshes the weary. Oh, how we need those reminders. Oh, how it's so easy, even as Christians, thoughtful, theological Christians, it's easy to go a long time without thinking about being made in God's image and being conscious to reflect him and his ways. And so we all fail. We know that, right? Let's be honest. We don't reflect the image of God very well. And many people don't. In fact, none of us do. You see, in Genesis 3, there's coming a fall, a rebellion against God. And the image of God makes that fall all the more astounding. They were made to reflect him, and instead they rebel against him, and all of us have been born into a world that continually goes astray. We poorly reflect our maker as we were designed to do. But, but then we remember this little passing verse in 1 Corinthians 15. It's verse 49. That we who were born in the image of the man of earth, referring to Adam, will one day be born according to the image of the man from heaven, Jesus. We're being made like him. We're being made in his image. This is the gospel story. This is God's glorious plan. Not just creation, but fall and redemption and restoration. Well, secondly, we see that they were created with God's design, verse 27. And by design, I mean specifically male and female. Verse 27 says, male and female, he created them. Do you remember from last week that there is this repeated pattern of two-ness throughout creation? Earth and sky, land and sea, moon and sun, light and darkness, and now man and woman. God has this pattern of two-ness that he has put into his creation from the very beginning, and it's all over the place. Remember that we saw last week that God makes distinctions. He separates elements of creation. He puts things according to their kind. God makes distinct things, distinct things that go together, that relate to each other, that complement one another. 
And God created all of humanity into one of two kinds. Not no kinds, not 50 kinds, two. And this is good of God. This is part of his goodness. This is part of being made in his image. We reflect oneness and plurality, even in the most fundamental relationship of husband and wife. Now, the Bible knows nothing of the very recent distinction in our culture, a distinction between gender and biological sex. It's the same thing here in our Bibles. The Bible doesn't think there's any difference. Gender and biological sex are the same. And yet we live in a very confused age on that issue. A very inconsistent age. You can read some left-wing newspapers and it's, you find they have a hard time keeping this straight. Should we say woman or not? Do we celebrate Kamala Harris as the first female vice president? Can you say that? Well, these are precarious days. So what are some guiding principles for us as Christians to navigate these choppy waters today? Let me propose three C words that might help you. That's not all that can be said, of course, but these three C words might be something you tuck in the back of your mind and bring to mind every now and then to help you navigate these choppy waters today. The first is conviction. We should have conviction about what the Bible says. Not the kind that is rude or pushy or shovey, but real conviction unapologetic conviction, sticking to what the Bible says about how he made us, no matter how weird it seems, and no matter what it costs us. Conviction. The second C is clarity. We need clarity about how we live this out. We want to live it out clearly. We need to be examples of the beauty and the wisdom of God's ways. We don't just say no and not that. We say, here's this. Look at this. Clarity. And the third is compassion. We need compassion on those who are confused. We shouldn't be the least bit surprised that any kid growing up in the U.S. these days would struggle with identity, with what it means to be masculine or feminine, or even sexuality, or even gender. We shouldn't be surprised. It's the air they're breathing. It's the water they're swimming in. Parents and church Let's not be shocked. Let's walk with those who wonder, who wrestle, and let's help them, however long it takes, let's help them see the clarity and the conviction and the goodness of God's ways as he laid out from the beginning. Now, we'll come back to the issues of gender and marriage in a couple of weeks when we're in chapter 2, but hopefully that's enough for us today to do some justice to verse 27. Thirdly, 
men and women. They were created with God's assignment. Verse 28, assignment. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, the same had already been said in verse 26. Let them have dominion over all the earth. And do you see here how the categories of image and design and assignment, they, they significantly overlap. This thing of assignment is still really about the divine image. The divine image being worked out. God has given human beings, his image bearers, an assignment. It's a, a massive assignment. It's a multifaceted assignment. It's an all-of-creation assignment. It's been called the creational mandate or the cultural mandate. It has two primary directives to it, multiplication and dominion. Let's take one of those one at a time. Multiplication. You see, it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, God has designed men and women to unite in marriage, to come together, and to procreate. Now, I know that is hard to hear for those couples who struggle with infertility. I know it seems to add insult to injury to hear that this is fundamental to how God made us and what he made us for. Well, we have to know that there is a fall in Genesis 3 that has wreaked havoc in creation, not least in our ability to procreate. Barrenness, hence, has a, a long history in the Bible. It's not infrequent in the Bible that some struggle with barrenness. Now, I don't know that trial from personal experience, but I've walked with many who have. I've prayed with them and prayed for them, and I know it is devastatingly hard. So if that's you today, I'm sorry. I am. You need to know or at least be reminded that infertility isn't a curse Infertility, just like singleness, isn't any less of the image of God. So God may have for you a different way in which you contribute to fruitfulness and multiplication. And maybe another Christian a little older than you who has also struggled with infertility could help you think through some of those ways. But more to the point of the text... Generally, it teaches that men and women will marry and bear children. This is God's plan. This is his design. This is a good thing, and it must be celebrated. It must be pursued where God allows it and gives it, which means that it's worth making less money to do this. It is worth having disadvantaged your career to do this. It's one of the most important, most fundamental things that God has assigned us to do. We now have one child out of college, two 
away at college, one next year going to college, so we're getting close to what people call empty nesters. And I can just tell you at this point, looking back, it's a crazy, awesome roller coaster ride, this thing of parenting, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's hard. You cry. You laugh. This is, this is real life. What an opportunity and a massive responsibility God has given us to be in charge of another image bearer for 18 or so years, or 28 or 30 years, if that's the case for you. <laughs> They've come back home. What an opportunity. What a massive responsibility God gives us to shape one of these arrows, as they're called in the Psalms, before they are shot off into the world to be their own image bearers in it. Now, some will ask, how many children should a Christian have then? Well, of course, the Bible doesn't say. It does say multiply. That doesn't have to be four, two times two is four. I can just tell you this, anecdotally, I can tell you that I haven't met any parents that wish that they had one or two less children than they had. Even those who've had very difficult children. I've never heard someone say, and I wish we'd never, never had him. We know not to say that. Others will ask, well, what about overpopulation of the earth? Haven't we multiplied enough now? Haven't we sufficiently filled the earth that we can coast for a little bit? Well, there is no coasting. We're either multiplying or we're going backwards. For over a century, the, the prophets of doom warned that we would be unable to feed 7 billion people. But then we had breakthroughs in agriculture and farming and most of us are eating just fine. So, God didn't tell us to fill the earth only to a certain point and then stop. We can trust him for his provision, which is what we'll get to in verse 30 and 31 in just a bit. But first, the other part of our assignment is dominion. Subdue it and have dominion, the text says. Very few words, but they're massive in meaning and significance and implications. In short, God has left us, his image bearers, as his vice regents on earth. It's all his, but we're stewards of it. We're different than the other creatures in this regard. We're among the creatures, yes, we're not God or gods, no. But we are unique. We're not just one of the creatures. We're over the other creatures. Psalm 8, which Drew read earlier, is both humbling and honoring. And it's a huge task to be crowned with glory and honor and to be given dominion over all the works of God's hands. Here's what it looks like. Here's some bullet points. Subduing and having dominion means creating, inventing, improving, bringing order to things, pushing back the chaos, organizing, blessing, caring for, nurturing, developing, 
doing good. And any work that can contribute to that is good work. Any work that is not sinful and not harmful is good work no matter what it is. No matter whether dad thought you should have gone down that career path or not. Whether or not it pays as well as some other path. Any work that is not sinful or harmful is good and can be an expression of of the two great commandments, love for God and love for our neighbors. I was talking with a couple of our members yesterday at the JCC. We were talking about this passage, and Frank was asking me about how this applies to his bug guy that he's been witnessing to. I said, oh, it applies, right? We are subduing the bugs. We are saying dominion. Try to have less bugs in the house. That's a good thing. Bugs, out there. You go there or you die. (laughs) Not here. That's that's organizing. That's separating. That's cleaning. That's, That's order. Matt at the gym yesterday reminded Frank and I of bread and all that goes into a slice of bread hitting our mouths. They're the grain farmers and then the bread factory where it gets made and then sliced and then packaged and then shipped to the grocery store where it awaits us coming and buying it and bringing it home and then putting it in the toaster and slathering butter and putting it in our mouths. You think of all that went into that and it's astounding. It's all part of image bearers sharing, working, contributing and it's all good. Dorothy Sayers said that work should not be looked upon as a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money, but as a way of life in which the nature of man should find its proper exercise and delight and so fulfill itself to the glory of God. That it should, in fact, be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself. And that man made in God's image should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. So whatever God puts before you to do like that, do it. We have our own stations, the reformers taught us. Stations. They also called them callings or vocations. Now, these relate to jobs, yes, but not just jobs. It relates to parenting, that's a station. Your work is a station if you have a job. Your school is one of these callings in your life. You'll have multiple callings and stations at any point in your life, and they'll likely change slightly throughout your life or significantly. But you should know what they are. You should know that that is the domain of image-bearing work for the good of others and to the glory of God. It means we all have our own little domains. Owning a house is having a domain. When you're a kid, your bedroom is your domain. 
and you are to subdue it. This is what we taught our kids early on. This is your domain. You put away toys to subdue this thing. You rule it well. You're not ruling it well. Let's get this organized. It's not just because mom and dad want it clean. It's because we're, we're training little image bearers to bear his image in fruitful ways. We want kids that are not just moral. We want kids not just that are mannered. We want kids not just even that are saved. We want kids who grow to be fruitful image bearers to the glory of God and for the good of his creation. Which means you teach them young and you, you teach them about this creational mandate and you teach them about domain and you expand their domain and show them better how to subdue this and subdue that. Which means that cleaning out the garage once a year is part of our image-bearing, domain-exercising, subduing of chaotic things. The cleaning of dishes and the vacuuming. and There are no small tasks. These are all under the giant, glorious umbrella of being cre created to reflect a God who subdues and gives us his vice regents domain to put things aright. This means that when engineers create deadly military armaments that hopefully we will never have to use, their creativity, their ingenuity is it's to the glory of God. And when artists apply oil to canvas to express beauty and goodness and truth, they do it as image bearers. This is the stuff that God has made you for. This is why he made you. And as Isaiah 43 verse 7 says, you were made for his glory. Not your glory. Do it well, do it thoughtfully, do it, sure, better than the next guy. And do it for his glory. And all this is not unrelated to our care for the earth. That shouldn't be a controversial matter for Christians. I'm not saying the Bible spells out specifics. I'm not saying all Christians must drive Priuses, thank God. We won't all apply the principle of caring for the earth the same way, with the same approaches. But we, we shouldn't ignore or assume the biblical principle behind being thoughtful and careful for the good of the earth and future generations. There are theological reasons for not littering, not just societal Rick Phillips says, we should embrace our obligation to use and employ the earth's resources in a beneficial way, not merely for ourselves, but for generations that will follow. When we consider the creator's pleasure in the goodness of the earth, it's impossible for us to think that he endorses a harmful exploitation of its resources that ruins its future worth. He goes on from there and is very helpful. 
Now, with all that in mind, again, we come back to the fall, remembering that chapter 3 is still looming. With all that in mind, that is why the fall is so upside down and backwards. In chapter 3, Adam will be AWOL while his wife faces the serpent's temptation. Adam and Eve will permit a God-belittling serpent free passage in the garden. Eve will listen to and obey the serpent rather than crush it. Ever since then, as human beings, we have struggled with dominion. This explains our wars and societal ills and broken homes. So we need more than just the creational mandate for a fix and for an eternal hope. We need more than just doing better at the creational mandate and working harder at it. We need, well, we need Jesus. I said already, he is the one who came to bear the image of God perfectly for us. That image is being restored to us. How? Well, because the man who bore the image of God perfectly went to the cross sacrificially. He went to the cross for us, and he took on death at the cross for us. And now, in his resurrection and ascension, he reigns. He reigns perfectly over creation. He's the perfect image bearer, the perfect son of God, the perfect man. And we can get in on his reign through his death and resurrection. Hebrews 2 puts it like this. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. We see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. We don't currently see him reigning, but one day he will reign fully, forever, completely, undeniably, visibly. But he does reign now, even if we don't see it all fully. And we can get in on his reign, his perfect reign, his unseen reign, his otherworldly reign, his reign that one day will be fully consummated if we simply put our hope and trust in his blood and righteousness and try to get others to join us in on it. That's the Great Commission, right? If Genesis 1 says, be fruitful and multiply, here's where that story goes. Not just procreating, but evangelizing. Witnessing. Jesus, before he left this earth, he, he said, With all authority in heaven and in earth, I send you out into the world, among the nations, to teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. This is God's plan for multiplying, for spreading, for getting more of his image bearers to not only be better image bearers, but to be forgiven, sons of God, restored, and under his reign. Now, fourthly and briefly, 
They are blessed with God's provision. Verse 29 and 30. Look down and see those. I'll just read them briefly. God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And God did the same and provided the same for the beasts and the other creeping things. God provides food for us. Yes, we'll read later on that human beings are to till the ground, we're to labor for that food. But at the end of the day, we say God provided it. He's good. He's made this world abundant with things to eat. And we eat. And we're nourished. And we do it all again. This is life, isn't it? Our passage is simply the description of life. Make babies and raise them. Work. Keep improving things on God's behalf. Eat. Enjoy. Repeat. That's it. You say, tell me about it. That's it. Well, but, but that's it. That's his assignment for you. Ecclesiastes says multiple times, I've seen what is good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. This is it. This is fundamental. It's okay that it's mundane, routine, monotonous at times. This is where God shines the best. This is all very good, which is what verse 31 says. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, a climactic benediction. Now it's very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then we come to the seventh day. The seventh day. God rested on the seventh day. That's chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now, humanity may be the culmination and the pinnacle of God's creatures, but they are not the culmination, not the climax of the creation week. It's day seven when God rested. He finished his work and he rested. Now, what does this mean? Well, we should first note that the seventh day is curious. Look down on your Bibles with me. How do the other days end? With this formulaic saying, there was evening, there was morning, the blank day. And the seventh day lacks that. That's unique. In fact, the seventh day, we're told, verse 3, God blessed that day and made it holy. What's that mean? Well, it's distinct. It doesn't mean it's holy like it has a halo. It doesn't mean it's moral. It means it's different. Day seven stands out on purpose, intentionally. There's no morning or evening stated in the seventh day, most likely because it's still going on. It's an unending day. It points to God's eternal rest. Eternal rest. You see, it's not a day of rest, this last day, like God just needed a breather before he got back to work on day eight. No. 
as God rested from his creation, that's the point, he rested from his creation, he finished his creation work. He formed, he filled, he finished. But that doesn't mean he stopped working. No, he's been working in providence. He's been working for our provision. Ever since Genesis 3, he's been working for our redemption. Our God works. In John 5, when Jesus healed on the Sabbath day, and his opponents said, wait a minute, you're doing work on the Sabbath. He said, my father is working until now, and so I am working. God has been working. God hasn't stopped. And yet it says here that he rested. And we might wonder what that means for us as his image bearers. Are we to follow suit? Some wonder. Some see the weekly Sabbath, that day of rest that Israel would explicitly be given later in the book of Exodus. Some see that right here from the very beginning. I'm not so sure. There's no command, right? It's descriptive. God rested. On the seventh day, God was finished with his creation. On the other hand... We know that when the Exodus commands about the Sabbath rest on the seventh day were given, this is the passage, Genesis 2, that they cite. There's some correlation. There's some basis. Remember that thing we talked about last week where we have to consider the first recipients of this material. The first five books of our Bible was compiled especially, first and foremost, for those Israelites in the wilderness in the days of Moses. And those people specifically had been given the command to Sabbath on the seventh day. No work. So they would need as much as anyone, as much as anyone ever, they would need to understand the roots of their Sabbath keeping and to be encouraged that it wasn't arbitrary and God wasn't just being picky or controlling. It was good. It's what God did. We can also say that at the very least... God has unquestionably put into his very creation the need for work and then rest. Work and then rest. Unlike God, we are not omnipotent. We are not tireless. We actually do need rest. The land needs rest when it is worked and worked and worked. I mean, you don't have to be a, a religious Jewish person to know that the land is supposed to rest. You, you can till it, you can plant, you can harvest. At some point, you need to just let it sit fallow. Well, like the land, we human beings do need rest. And yet, there has to be more to this Sabbath rest, this rest of God from the seventh day in Genesis 2. There has to be more. Again, I think it points to God's eternal rest. And by implication, as the story unfolds throughout the Bible, we are invited to enter into God's eternal rest. One of the mile markers along the way is Jesus showing up and calling himself rest. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the source of rest, spiritual rest, true rest. 
in Hebrews 4, it interacts with this whole idea of Sabbath and rest and says, yes, there remains today a rest still to come, referring to God's eternal rest. It says that we can enter in now as we rest in Christ, just as God ceased from his labors on the seventh day, so we cease from commending our labors to God when we come to Christ. We rest in his finished work. He finished his work. Just as God in creation worked his work of creation, then completed it and rested, so Jesus accomplished our redemption as he said from the cross, it is finished, and he breathed his last. And Hebrews goes on to say that he, after his resurrection and ascension, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down. It's done. It's settled. And yet, his work is ongoing. He is building his church. He is reigning and he invites you in. The Bible says you were made to reflect God and his ways. You know and I know none of us have done a perfect job of that. But Jesus came to reflect the glory of God perfectly and to die on that cross sacrificially and raise from the dead victoriously and now reigns supremely over all creation. And he invites you to believe that and embrace it and ask him for it. We'd encourage you to do that today. That's the word in Hebrews, today. Do it today, today, while it's still today. Because today might not one day be today. I pray that today you would come to rest in Jesus. Perhaps even as we sing this next song. Let's just pray briefly and then we'll sing. Lord, we thank you for your word and for your glorious plan and for Jesus, our rest. We thank you for his reign. We thank you for the hope of a greater reign still to come. We thank you for your purposes to do us good and to use us, Lord. To use us to reflect your ways. Help us, we pray, to do it better, more thoughtfully, and in more love for others in days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.